I'm Leanne Lord, and this is Human Story. There's a story in your head, a kind of autobiography, the story of who you are and how you got there. You've been writing and revising it all your life. I've got one too. We all do. We take the chaos of information from a normal life and create a story that makes sense. And hey, some of it might even be true. But considering who's telling the story, it's no surprise that a lot of it just doesn't hold up. Dale McGowan was well into adulthood before random memory surfaced, poking a hole in what he calls his founding myth. He had a choice. Stick with the better story or switch to the truer one. There's a story I told myself about myself for maybe half my life. It starts with me staring into the open casket of my father. He was 45. I was 13. His death was the event that suddenly hit me between the eyes with the big questions. What happens when we die? Why are we here? Is somebody driving this thing? Now, I wasn't mad at God for taking him away, nothing like that. You can't really blame God for killing a man with a -a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit. I was grief-stricken, but there was also this real curiosity as I stared into the casket. My dad was clearly not in there. So, where was he? That question was the beginning of a search that would take me through ancient myths and current religions and science and philosophy. I read everything, thought about everything. I talked to everyone I knew about what they believed and why. I was that kid who could turn a conversation about pizza toppings into an exploration of death and free will and ultimate meaning. It was an intense process, and I ended up with the conclusions I hold today, that this natural world is all there is, that we have one life that really ends, and that as much as it might help to believe otherwise, nobody's driving this thing. And it all started when I was 13, as the lid of my dad's casket was slowly lowered, and I swore through my tears to learn the truth. Yeah, or not. Parts of that story are true. Other parts are less so. The best part of the story, the casket epiphany, did not happen that way. Couldn't have. I'd have sworn it did. I could see it in my mind's eye. But no. I eventually remembered some clear details that are inconvenient for that story. I spent most of the day after the funeral in my bedroom, reading on my bed just to avoid a house full of relatives. That was never going to work. Somebody was going to head out on a seek and console mission. And sure enough, at some point there was a voice from the doorway. Oh, Dale, said my Aunt Dar, my father's sister. She had flown to L.A. from St. Louis for the funeral. Our whole family was St. Louis working class. So Dar is not for Darlene, but Doris. Dar looked at the book in my lap, and her eyes just lit up. Oh, that's wonderful, she said. I'm so glad to see you reading that. There is no better place to turn in times of trouble. It was the Bible. I was reading the Bible. 
What Antar could not have known is that I hadn't turned to it for comfort. I was already reading it skeptically. And I know by what happened next that it had nothing to do with my dad's death a few days earlier. Dar walked to my bedside and glanced at the page I was reading. Oh, oh, no, dear, she said. You don't want the books of Kings. Not now. Kings is not for the bereaved. God sends bears to slaughter some kids for teasing a prophet about his baldness. Women eat each other's children. Things like that. She flipped the pages forward, flip, 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 to Psalms, patted my shoulder, and left the room, knitting her own story. You see the problem for the casket epiphany? Nobody starts reading in Kings. Like everybody else, I started in Genesis, 300 pages back. I was well into a full read-through of the Bible. I had big questions, and this was the place my culture sent me to. So I started at the beginning, and I read. And about 300 pages later, my dad died. The casket epiphany has all the earmarks of the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves. We're all the unpaid editors of our own personal histories. Whenever one of us starts holding forth about who we are and how we got there, a title card should appear over our heads that says, inspired by actual events. Because what follows is always selective and usually self-serving, and sometimes just flat-out fiction. The editing isn't the problem. We can't help the editing. There's too much detail. There's always too much. So we pick and choose what to include in our story. Princeton researcher Tanya Lombroso describes this as creating a narrative that makes sense out of the chaos of available information. We choose what seems important and then create stories from it to make sense of the world. The evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould called Homo sapiens the storytelling animal. The question is, do we choose what to include based on what's true or on what makes a better story? The casket epiphany is a better story. It's just better. It's neat and clean. It has a starting point. It has a narrative arc. It has a hero. But when the hero is the one telling the story, well, that's when I put my money on Aunt Dar. It's a messier story. Bad structure. And the more I thought, the messier it got. I was obsessed with Greek myths back in elementary school and thinking about this religion that no one believed in anymore. Every dog I had that died got me thinking about big questions. I read Carl Sagan and talked about the big questions with, guess who? My dad, I think. And I started reading through the Bible at some point, and then somewhere in there, my dad happened to die unrelatedly. What kind of storytelling is that? That mess doesn't hold a candle to the casket. So my brain fixed it up into a better story, that explained how I became me. And I told that story to myself and others for years, until at some point, the memory of Aunt Dar 
and kings surfaced like a narwhal. And I had to set aside the better story in favor of the truer one. From the outside, that casket story might not seem important. But it was to me. It was my founding myth. It connected me to my dad. Made me feel like I'd, you know, taken the baton from him in some way. But by the time it fell apart, the value of the truth over my preferences was strong enough for me to stop telling that story. Truer is better. But there was another story I told myself about myself that was definitely connected to his death. And it cast a shadow over my life for years. His death seemed to come out of nowhere, and that more than anything terrified me. And the story I began to tell myself was that my own life hung by a thread. It was an obsession for a while. I started noticing my heartbeat as I'd lie in bed and wonder how it just keeps, you know, doing that. And how long it will keep doing that. And whether thinking about it for hours at a time could make it stop doing that. It turns out this is a common theme when someone loses a parent at an early age. Religious, non-religious, doesn't matter. But I didn't have the option of seeing myself in the palm of a protective hand. I was going to have to solve this on the secular side, or not at all. Death itself wasn't the big problem for me. I mean, it was. It is. I'm not in favor of it. But there are ways to come to grips with the eventuality of death. One is to realize you've already been there. I didn't exist before birth. I won't exist after death. The first one didn't bother me. Why should the next one? I like that kind of thing. It's interesting. Doesn't completely feed the bulldog, but it's a milk bone. But my problem was different. It was a today problem. For years after my dad died, death felt like a shadow on my life. It felt imminent when I was 17. I felt the tenuousness of life at 23. And you're probably thinking that's ridiculous, right? I was being ridiculous. Was I? Okay, let's do this. Let me let you into my head. In the center of your chest is a pump made of meat. Every second or so, your meat pump contracts and then relaxes for some reason. If you're like me, you don't know exactly how it does that, but it still does that once or twice every second of your life. This is good because your meat pump pushes a thick fluid through 60,000 miles of soft tubing in your body, a fluid on which your life relies. Most of these tubes are very small, but about 200 miles of your tubing is big enough that if it breaks and lets the fluid out, you'll wish it hadn't. Now, have you walked those 200 miles recently? Kicked the sides, you know, checked for weak spots? Oh, I'm sorry. You say you've never even looked at them? You, you say they're hidden inside of you? Oh. I'm sure they're fine. My dad had one bad inch of tubing, but all 12,672,000 inches of potentially fatal tubing in your body are probably, you know, A-OK. 
It goes well beyond meat pump and tubes, of course. A huge number of things have to keep working for you to keep working. Kidneys, liver, lungs, brain, the vital organs, as they are tellingly called. A small spray of pancreatic cells called the islets of Langerhans performs the essential function of, I don't know what they do. No, don't yell it out, I don't care, and that's the point. I do know that it's essential. And despite my ignorance, my islets do it anyway, at least so far. We seem so solid, so eternal, when in fact we live in soft bodies that die if you poke them hard enough, and it's a very pokey universe. It's no surprise that our species has shown a talent for inventing escape clauses. Non-existence is not acceptable to the conscious mind, so we pop up somewhere else after we die, or live again as squirrels. Anything will do but the complete extinction of our identities. But as we've peeled back the protective film of the universe, discovering just how small and recent we really are, and learning that we are little different from the animals whose total annihilation at death we have no trouble accepting, the belief that the universe has elaborately contrived to save us, and only us, from disappearing into the void, has become harder to honestly sustain. And we are left to deal with it. I wanted to deal with it. I wanted to look death right in the eye, to understand it. So I started seeking out every genuine, probing, honest, searching thought anyone has ever had about it. The most religious thoughts about death seemed like cheating to me. They answer the difficult question of mortality by just declaring us immortal. That's like trying to heal a cancer patient by erasing cancer from the dictionary. Death really happens. It's going to happen to me and to everyone I know. And everyone I don't know. The most significant and profound thing about our existence is that it ends, rivaled only by the fact that it begins. On either side of those bookends is non-existence, non-being. It's almost hopeless to even try to imagine that since the act of imagining is an act of existence, a thing that consciousness does. But I try anyway. How could you not? So thinking about death is fine, but telling myself it was at the door every day, not fine, not healthy. Then finally, after years in the Valley of the Shadow, I had a simple insight. It was a secular insight that helped lift me out of that terrible story. See, there's something I've noticed about my own meat pump and all those around me. They could stop at any time, but they tend not to. This thought hit me as I walked down Oxford Street, a thick artery of humanity running through the very meat pump of London. It suddenly struck me how few of the thousands of people around me were dropping to their knees, clutching their chests and ceasing to be. Thinking back on all the crowds of thousands I found myself in, all the stadiums, street festivals, riots, and shopping malls in my life, only once had I ever seen someone do that. While boarding a train in Vienna, a man in front of me 
someone whose immediate plans up to that point had matched my own, crumpled to the platform and ceased to be. It was clear from the reactions of everyone around him that something unusual had happened. For all the tenuousness of life, for all the ways in which the human body can dispense with our consciousness and get on with the business of entropy, it generally doesn't do that for a long, long time. Untimely deaths are noteworthy because they are untimely. They are exceptions. Most of us will not die young. The crumpled man on Platform 6 was 75 if he was a day. The only thing unusual about his death was the presence of a hundred other meat pumps in the vicinity, all of them skipping a beat at the sight of their traitorous colleague. I can understand the religious inkling that we're being cared for somehow. We are inexpressibly fragile, and yet for the most part do not break. It seems a self-evident miracle. But then we consider what happened to those in the distant past with bad pumps or flimsy tubes. They tended to return to the dust much earlier than those with better parts, passing on their genes to fewer offspring, and eventually leading to a population of human bodies that are pretty good at staying alive for a long while. That's us. That's me. It's still not forever, but the insight that I'm naturally selected to be durable is a truer story than the one I lived with for so many years. And truer is better. That was episode one of Human Story, a podcast exploring the human experience from a secular point of view, one story at a time. Storytelling is sense-making, creating order from the chaos of input, Gods have been a part of the human story for as long as we've been telling it, coloring our conception of who we are. Once we set all that aside, there's a huge project of unpacking and rediscovery to be done. What if we take one natural world and one mortal life as a starting point? Who are we? Why are we the way we are? And how can we see the world more clearly? That's the truer story we want to tell. Each episode, I'll bring you a different storyteller, one secular person sharing what it's like to be one of 7 billion living, feeling, thinking human creatures temporarily awake on a minor planet. Next time, we'll hear from writer Captain Cassidy on Chasing False Wonder. So what's your story? If you have a secular perspective, go to onlysky.media slash submissions to submit an idea for an episode of your own. We're especially interested in post-religious stories, stories about life after you're done grappling with religion. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to live in your head and see the world through your eyes. That's onlysky.media slash submissions. Human Story is a production of Only Sky Media, a home for journalism, storytelling, and opinion, serving the growing community of the religiously unaffiliated. Visit us online and add your voice to the conversation at onlysky.media and subscribe to the Human Story podcast on the service of your choice. Thanks for listening. I'm Leanne Lord. See you next time for Human Story.